0: Well, we want to uh, continue this morning, uh, where we, right where we left off last week, we are in the seventh chapter of Daniel, right? And uh, we want to look at the last few verses of it, actually. Daniel chapter 7, all right. Last time we said a lot of things uh, about uh, this uh, seventh chapter, comparing it to the second chapter. Chapter and how, from the in the eyes of a, a godly person, these kingdoms do not represent precious metals, but rather beasts. Uh, and when we have eyes to see and we understand uh, the things of the Lord, we we see uh, that uh, what this world and its empires and kingdoms have to offer uh, is not uh, precious and and great, but rather. Uh, from the perspective here, fear and um, uh, intimidation uh, and uh, uh, ungodliness of of all sorts. One of the things that we learn from the seventh chapter is that these empires don't last. That's another thing we learn here, certainly, that they don't last, that there's one that comes after the other. And they come after the other until the final manifestation of the kingdom of God in this world. We saw last time that uh, uh, the, after the four kingdoms that there is the Ancient of Days who comes and the Son of Man coming in the clouds and we related that to the B'rit Chadashah, to the New Covenant, to what Yeshua says and how he brings clarity uh, and understanding to that passage and how he identifies with that Son of Man coming in the clouds. And we talked about what that meant in terms of his first appearance and what it means to us uh, uh, today. Uh, And something that we said back in the second chapter when we looked at it, but I did not say, I don't think last week, is that while these four kingdoms represent four real-world empires that really, uh, from Daniel's point of view, were present and future, and from our point of view today, our, our past, that the fact that he uh, mentions four uh, relates to other passages of Scripture, perhaps, that speak that these four kingdoms are real, but also represent, in a sense, the essence of every world empire, the essence of every world kingdom. And as we saw uh, here, in uh, the 7th chapter, the, uh, the last time, that these kingdoms actually uh, do not, are not extinguished, but they're sort of put on hold. For example, as it says in verse 12, it says, As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. That's kind of interesting, you know? In other words, that they're not extinguished. Uh, and so may I suggest that they are representative of, of all world kingdoms, and, and all world kingdoms are related, in essence, in essence to these, indeed, four uh, 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 kingdoms. And there are places, and I remember talking about this in the second chapter, and you can listen online to this, right? Uh, that when we read about, like, the four corners of the earth, uh, and things of that nature, it speaks of like a totality. Uh, and, uh, and so that's important to understand, especially when we look at the world in which we live and the world powers which govern this world. And we said last time that we should not be surprised that uh, the ethics, the morals, the beliefs, the very core of what it means to be uh, related to the Lord uh, and the King of Israel is different from the ethics the morals and and everything that these world kingdoms stand for and that we have had a free pass for a really really long time living in the good old uh, usa Uh, however we see that the moorings uh, have moved away from the dock uh, and that more and more it is clearer and clearer uh, that Uh, the body of Messiah is very different from what this world stands for, see? Uh, And and so we talked all about that the last time. So we want to look at the end of this chapter now in chapter 7. And we mentioned this before about how, you know, Yeshua is the king and and that is the kingdom that, that will last forever and ever and dominion will be given to Messiah Yeshua. And we saw that in the New Covenant, and as well as here in, in Daniel. But then remember that Daniel asks for the interpretation. And so what we want to understand is that the last part of this interpretation, because he elaborates a little bit uh, about this kingdom of God and the dominion given to the Son of Man. And, and so there's uh, some additional information for us uh, to learn here. Okay, so... Let's uh, look here in verse 23. Then he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. And he will speak out against the Most High and will wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in laws, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty... The dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Actually, we're going to save the last verse for later. Okay, so as he said before, in the, as Daniel recounted in the dream, that this fourth beast is different and Uh, more grotesque and more powerful, uh, uh, and scarier than all the others. Uh, and that's what we mean by ten horns, uh, here, uh, that the horns speak of power. And this is the, this is the kingdom with great power, right? And then there will be one who will come who will have, uh, extreme power. And we talked about that and who will, uh, uh, overpower uh, uh, the, the, other, uh, the other powerful uh, kings. Now, in other places, in the book of Daniel, this gets elaborated on, especially like in the ninth, uh, of the ninth chapter. And what we're going to see there, without turning there, I'm just going to say this because we're going to get there, is, is that the focus will be uh, on the Eretz Yisrael, on the land of of Israel uh, and uh, that when it so when it says here he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the Saints of the highest one uh, and make alterations in times and in laws uh, and given into his hand for a time times and half a time traditionally that's understood as years uh, I mean there are other choices but traditionally it's understood as about a uh, three and a half years and so this certainly plays into what we uh, read about in the 8th in the, uh, chapter, as we will see, and in the ninth chapter, and in the 11th chapter, but it's kind of introduced uh, uh, to us uh, here. And so that there is going to be uh, this one who is going to come as an all-powerful uh, person and be different from other kings and other evil kings, even, and emperors and world leaders, Right? and he is going to speak out specifically against the Most High, that is, the, the King of Israel, the God of Israel, Hashem, Adonai, yud right? That's who that is speaking about, and will wear down the saints of the Highest One, the Holy Ones of the Highest One. Now, you have to remember that from Daniel's point of view, and as we read the Bible in this direction, you know, that we don't immediately read in uh, the the new covenant or the the you know the, the body of Messiah, um, but that this is speaking about the the remnant of Israel, the saints of the highest one, and uh, he's going to come and he's going to uh, invade so to speak the holy places uh, of uh, of Israel and and change the worship, change the laws, and all of that. And and that is what we will see uh, later on. But what we learn here is that this one He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Most High. Right? But what we read here is that it's not the end. But He is going to wear them down. And this, is, this becomes very scary, especially when Daniel... Uh, 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 learns this. You'll notice now in verse 28, it says, At this point the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming. Isn't it interesting? His thoughts aren't, yes, yes, it's all going to be great and victorious. Uh, And so uh, let's just, you know, be rejoicing. And so why is it that when Daniel gets this information, He's greatly alarmed, but when we get this information, we are like, yes! You know, uh, so it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting, right? All right, so we're going to look at that. So Daniel is greatly alarmed. His, great, his face grew pale. He was, he was really scared, and he kept this to himself. Because he sees here that, you know, before it gets, it gets better, it gets worse. Okay, Uh, and so we see here that the saints will be worn down. All right. But then it says, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. So you have several things that that the text simply says. It says that there... It's not that there are no other kingdoms of this world, but that they all come under the dominion of the king of Israel, the highest one, right? Uh, And we saw uh, back in verses 13 and 14, this is kind of like a little explanation of verses 13 and 14, when he says, "...but I kept looking at the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming," and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and so here that gets elaborated on by saying here that that first of all this one with the little horn of that fourth kingdom he is going to for a season have dominion and it's going to be really, really, really bad. But then he's going to be judged by this one who is this son of man coming in the clouds, right? And, uh, and then we see that those who are being worn down now are the ones who rule. It says, then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole earth will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one and his kingdom will be an everlasting king, kingdom, right? Uh, and, and, and then as it says, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So what Daniel understands is that there is indeed this fifth kingdom, and there is indeed this son of man coming in the clouds, and there is a, you know, uh, indeed this uh, this kingdom of God, which is this kingdom of Israel, and that just as uh, the uh, the prophets have said that uh, he would be king uh, forever. Now it's interesting that you read in another passage that comes that's in one of the uh, prophets, but that's after Daniel. There's only a few of them, and one of them is Zechariah. And you read in Zechariah, the prophet, in the um, 12th chapter. Okay, it says, uh, right at the beginning, it says, "...the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around." And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his riders with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah, first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will, be, will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out of the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, then, uh, let me just read the beginning of chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. And I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished. And half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day he will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives will be split in in its middle from east to west, a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. And then it says... And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And then it goes on to describe some real great supernatural events that will take place. Uh, And then if you go all the way down to verse 16, that's where we have the the famous uh, passage about Sukkot, right? Then it will come about that any who are left among the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So what you see there is that we see that that, uh, it gets very bad before it gets very good. But we see in Zechariah that those who dwell there will become very powerful and, and defeat those who have come against God. And that is basically uh, what we see in this apocalyptic vision of of Daniel. Now, uh, what we also read here, which is fascinating, usually when we read this, we are thinking uh, in terms of, okay, the Lord is going to return and he's going to sit on his throne and then the world will be right. Yes, that is true. But also it does uh, say here, like we have said, that uh, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole earth will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Uh, and so there is, in this vision of Daniel, a role to play for those who embrace the king. Okay, uh, And in the context of this, uh, in the context of, of this passage, he's talking about uh, frankly, the remnant of Israel. Now, we know later on that the mystery is, is that the nations relate to the uh, king of Israel through Yeshua and, the, and, and join up along with uh, these holy ones. But it's important for us to understand this because Yeshua himself taught uh, 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 about this concept uh, that those who uh, embrace him ultimately uh, come to rule with him, right? So we're going to turn to an unusual passage that we might say has nothing to do with this, but actually it has everything to do with it. And that is in the Brit Shai, and that is in the Gospel of Mark in the 12th chapter. Okay? You might say, what does that have to do with anything? Right? How come you are not turning to Revelation chapter twenty or something? We can all be on the edges of our seats and you know and all that, right? Okay. So here in Mark chapter eleven, there's a parable. Okay. Now Yeshua has uh, entered into uh, into Jerusalem, uh, and uh, that's in chapter eleven. And now, and he's teaching here now in chapter twelve, and it says, and he began to speak to them in parables. Okay, And it says, a man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out as vine growers went on a journey. Now do you notice in your text, uh, in that first verse, either the, uh, the phrase planted a vineyard and put a wall around it might be like all capitals or you might have a little letter there that tells you it comes from another place. Well, it does. It comes from Isaiah chapter 5. The, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, because Isaiah tells a parable. And his parable is about this vineyard. And, and he says that God is the vine dresser. God is the owner of the vineyard. And the vineyard doesn't meet his expectations at all. The vineyard is just, it's all just vines and it's not growing anything. And, and, and it's going to be, going to be judged. And so Yeshua goes back to that passage in Isaiah, chapter 5 about this vineyard, okay? And so uh, Yeshua then says, he, he, he takes that parable, and it's like he makes it his own parable. It says, and at the harvest time, he sent a slave to vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed, okay? So to, to understand it, okay, so he planted a vineyard, a man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, like protected it, did everything, built a tower, and then uh, went on a journey, and in the meantime, he, he, gave, he actually hired people to take care of this vineyard, to make sure that it got watered, and you know, all those, kinds of, uh, all those kinds of things. Then it says, and at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers to receive the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. So what do we see? They took him, they beat him, they sent him away empty-handed. Okay, then again he sent another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. So what we're seeing here is that this vineyard that God has uh, planted, and we read in Isaiah 5 uh, that this vineyard is, you know, is Israel, right? And, and so we have here this vineyard and we see that God has sent slaves May I suggest the prophets, Uh, uh, but each are rejected. They're rejected. This vineyard that's supposed to bear fruit isn't bearing fruit, and those who come are rejected. Then he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. After all, he's my son. Right? Right. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. He doesn't destroy the vineyard. He destroys those who are given the the authority and the responsibility to care for the vineyard. He doesn't destroy the vineyard. It is clear that Yeshua is taking this passage from Isaiah 5. And I won't take the time, but if you go back to Isaiah 5, it is quite clear that the vineyard is Israel. And it's clear, as we'll see uh, uh, a little farther on down here, that those in authority understand he's talking about them. Okay? So then it says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. uh, And it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, what does Psalm 118 in verse 22 have to do With Isaiah chapter 5. What does the vineyard have to do with the stone that's rejected? Well, you see, what Yeshua is explaining is is that the son who is rejected is the very same one whom Psalm 118 in verse 22 is talking about. The son who is rejected is the one who is representative here as. The one uh, who had been rejected, but now uh, is redeemed and becomes the chief cornerstone, is saying to them uh, that that what is what is here will be torn down, and a new day is indeed coming. Okay, and they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the multitude, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Okay, so he left. So they left him and went away. So the the point is here is that those who are given the authority over Israel ultimately uh, here, and as we see it also also in Ezekiel, so it's all over the scriptures, in Ezekiel chapter 34, that's a place where, where we read, woe, uh, woe to the false shepherds of Israel, those who seek and devour. So Yeshua's point is, is that he is coming himself. He is the one who is rejected, but he is the one who is coming to establish a kingdom. And he truly is the king of Israel, whether Israel accepts him or not, or understands him or not. He really is the king. He's not only the king because we believe it. He's the king because he is. He is indeed the Messiah of Israel. And he is the one who is going to come and to revive the vineyard. Okay? Now, I don't have time, but boy, this sheds some interesting light on John chapter 15 about Yeshua and the vineyard and the branches, but that's for another day. But here he's saying that he is the one who is coming, who is going to uh, be the one to revive the vineyard of Israel and and give the this kingdom so to speak to another and uh that is speaking about those who embrace Yeshua and so we see here when you take this back to Daniel chapter 7 okay this in verse 27 this is a great promise uh, uh that those who embrace Yeshua uh have this tremendous role to play in this uh kingdom and, and having dominion over the other, over other nations. And, and so we read it in, in a lot of places. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, Yeshua speaks to his disciples and talks about the day when they will uh, sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. We read in, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12 that we shall reign with him. Uh, in Revelation chapter 20, in verses 5 and 6, we read the same thing. Uh, about those who embracing Yeshua reigning with him, so this uh passage in Daniel is a very empowering one in the uh, in the sense that not only is there the promise that uh the enemy of God will be destroyed and and Yeshua the the man uh, coming uh, the one who comes like a man in the clouds, uh, ultimately will rule. But that we will rule with him, the saints of the highest one. Uh, and of course, like I said, yes, it's the remnant of Israel and all who embrace uh, the, uh, the Messiah. Uh, now what does this mean? Now, you know, in, in the history of uh, the in church history, the institutional church history, passage like this, passages like this empowered people to think that what believers are therefore supposed to do is to physically overpower the nations of this earth and to be the the physical kingdom. That is what motivated uh, those who did horrible things in, uh, you know, the crusades and and, and all of that. Their uh, motivation was this triumphalist understanding uh, that, you see, we are to establish this kingdom in this world, and and see, then God will bless it, and then the Lord will return, uh, and everything will be great. But you see, the problem is they had it backwards. They had it backwards. That first, the Son of Man must come in the clouds. First, the Messiah must manifest himself to all the earth. And then we who are with him have life, are empowered and and reign with him, but not reign as in the the uh the way that the kingdoms of this world reign. That's the problem. We understand it as uh uh to um uh suppress uh, uh to uh control uh to overpower of uh, for one's own the furtherance of one's own kingdom see so what's interesting here is what we learn from the scriptures is that in this kingdom those who are last are first in this kingdom uh we are to live in a particular uh, kind of way with yeshua being this uh this king and it's very interesting You see, in that day, in that day, the whole world is going to be ruled by a series of values that we read about in a passage like this. When We read about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Things like that. You know, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Things like that that in that kingdom that is how we will all relate to each other but now in this world we relate a different way we relate according to the deeds of the flesh the deeds of the flesh is how the world works this is how the world works this is where power comes from this is where empires and kingdoms get their power immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy outbursts of anger disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. That's how the world works, you see. But you see, in this kingdom, we live by a different set of, a different set of uh, standards. Now, today, Yeshua has come, and the Bible says, uh, in a passage like Colossians, in chapter 1, in verse 13, he has delivered us, from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Okay, And so we've, uh, we've looked at this before, that we uh, today uh, dwell under the reign, uh, the lordship of, of God via Yeshua. And when Yeshua came, this kingdom has indeed manifested itself invisibly, and we become that manifestation. But our goal is not to take over the world our goal is not to uh, uh physically overtake the world that is not what we are living in this in between period and what we are called to do is to testify of the reality of this kingdom and to draw people into this kingdom okay uh, and and so therefore when you look at uh, for example the way of life of yeshua isn't it interesting that uh, when Yeshua uh, came into this world as king, we read that, that he is the king, right? In the first chapter of Luke, when uh, Mary or Miriam uh, is asking Gabriel, the angel, who, so who is this that's in me? He says, this is the king of Israel. Okay, so, but isn't it interesting that when he manifested in this life, Yeshua came into this world, he did not live like a king. He lived as a humble Servant, right? And he, he even says, I came not to be served, but to serve. I don't read that about any of the other kings of Israel or uh, any, any world leader that there has ever been, right? Now, we might say public servant or called to, called to serve. and That's nice. You know, that, those are nice words. But nobody came like Yeshua and offered up his own life for the deliverance of this world. But we know that he rose again from the dead and lives forevermore. And he is indeed the king. And this kingdom has been inaugurated. And the day will come when he will appear again. But this time the whole world will uh, recognize him. And what the body of Messiah is will truly be manifested and understood uh, in this world. Okay, now Yeshua uh, explained this to his disciples. When he said things like, you know, there's a mystery of this kingdom where it looks very inconsequential, but it is the pearl of great price. You know, uh, but it may look tiny and insignificant, but it is of great significance. But we have to understand, uh, you know, that we are called to be like Yeshua and to manifest his humility uh, and his love and compassion In this world and his holiness all at the same time it's like a paradox everything is like a paradox isn't it when it comes to yeshua he was the holiest of all people okay he was the holiest of all people yet he was the one who stepped over the lines and the boundaries uh, and had dinner with sinners right yet he was the holiest it doesn't seem to make sense you would think that the holiest of all people would have nothing to do with those on the margins, those who are the rejected, the, you know. But see, we're called to live that way too. We're called to manifest this kingdom today in this sense of uh, this humility before God, of being a holy people, but uh, reaching out and drawing people to the Lord. See? So it's very interesting uh, uh, that you read in. Oh, a passage like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is making this point about reigning with him. But he's, he's talking of, it's very situational. He's talking about a situation where people are suing each other, where believers are suing each other. But he's, he uses it to make a point. Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you... Are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Okay, This is all leading up to something. If then you have uh, law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account uh, in the, the congregation, in the body of Messiah? I say this to your shame it is so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren. But brother, uh, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you, that you uh, have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Okay, okay. then he says, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud uh, and your brethren. So he's trying to explain to them that, do you understand the position that you're in in this world? Do you understand the role that God has given you? Why are you getting into it with uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord when we need to recognize our calling before this world? So then in verse 9 he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. By the way, you know what revilers is? People that use speech abusively. That's what it means. That is literally what it means. People who use speech abusively. Okay? Nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. But you were washed... But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Yeshua, Messiah, and in the Spirit of God. So he's saying, you need to be a holy people. You need to be different from the world out there, because you are called to oversee that world. Now, they weren't overseeing the world, and neither was Paul, right? Because he understood that this is our eschatological calling. This is like our end-time, ultimate calling when when the Lord returns. But today, we need to understand that we have this tremendous role to play in this world of drawing people to Him and interceding on their behalf. And while this world may define those who embrace Yeshua as marginal, the reality is we play an exceedingly important role in this world of being a light in the midst of darkness and even though kingdoms of this world still may reign we need to recognize that while and while we may suffer may while we may be being worn out so to speak it's not the end it's not the final bell it's not the last call it's not the end of the road because in the end the lord will indeed reign and we shall reign with him in fact If you go all the way back to Exodus, uh, chapter 19, that is indeed the calling of Israel to be a nation of kings and ministers or priests. Very important to understand. God has called Israel, the Jewish people, to lead this world to the God of Israel. That's what the chosen part means. You know, it's a calling. And so when we embrace Yeshua, we become part of that calling. When Jewish people embrace Yeshua, it's a return to the calling. When Gentiles embrace Yeshua, it's entering into that calling. But whether we're returning or we're entering in, we both come through the same door to the same Messiah, to the same God, and receive the same repentance and uh, forgiveness of sins. And what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 6 is, so were some of you. We all, uh, as, uh, as um, someone likes to say, something to the effect of, we were all dirty, rotten, stinking. I can't remember the whole thing. But anyway, dirty, rotten, stinking sinners, right? Every one of us, every single one of us. And the wonderful thing is, is that in Yeshua, he cleanses us and forgives us and we have entry into this exalted position with him and that is a tremendous that's what it means we've been delivered from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son and so here at the end of the seventh chapter of daniel yes daniel is upset because things are going to get worse before they get better but in the end they not only get better they're fantastic see whether we see it in our lives or not, but we are called to work toward that end just like Yeshua did. And I can't stress that enough. When Yeshua came into this world, we are called to be like him. And so think about what the king did. The king suffered. The king testified uh, uh, of the forgiveness and the grace of God the king reached out into unholy places not to, um, not to um, um, give credence to unholiness, but to show that there is a better way. Nor did he beat them over the heads to show them the better way, but he led them to himself. See? And that is exactly what we are uh, called uh, to be. And so... Uh, we are called to be that kind of testimony. And uh, as a Messianic Jewish community, boy, when you look at Daniel chapter 7, uh, yes, the kingdoms of this world are going to have their day. And uh, Paul even says, uh, you know, about the spirit of Antichrist, and he talks about the, uh, the spirit of lawlessness is, is here with us even now. Uh, and so let us not think that, that things are like supposed to get better. Now, when Yeshua returns, uh, and and all of our eggs need to be in that basket, Uh, and so as it says again in verse 27, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and the dominion will serve the dominions will serve and obey him. And so this is another way of saying that all the nations will come to Jerusalem and worship the Lord the king of kings that all the nations will come uh to uh uh, uh Jerusalem uh that Israel uh will uh fulfill her calling and and lead this world uh, uh to uh the, the light of Messiah uh, but the entranceway is embracing yeshua uh, the messiah of israel and so we are so fortunate to uh have this great truth and to know uh, that wow uh, while while dominions and nations and empires still reign the messiah has indeed has indeed come the king has indeed come he is the king of israel he is the king of the nations. And, what, and we are so thankful that God has opened up our eyes to see that so we can embrace him. And so uh, our calling again is to be like Yeshua in this world. And the day will indeed come. As we looked at last week, I won't repeat it, from Matthew chapter 24, uh, that the one like the Son of Man will, will come in the clouds. And that will be the second appearance of Yeshua himself. And in that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Yeshua is Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you, God, that ultimately the dominion of those who are in power in this world will ultimately be taken away, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that the day will come when uh, you will truly physically reign in this world. And thank you, Lord that our future is to reign with you. Lord, we do pray, God, that during these days, God, as we look forward to that day, as we look forward to that inheritance, that we might be encouraged to realize what the future indeed holds, and that we might focus on that future, and that we might take seriously our calling. As Yeshua told his uh, disciples, when they asked him, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? He said, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Lord, may we take that calling seriously. Yes, indeed, you will restore Israel, just as we read at the end of Daniel chapter 7. Thank you, Lord, that you will restore Israel. Israel. But Lord, we know that our calling is to be a testimony of the reality of Yeshua, of the coming of Messiah in, in Jerusalem, Judea, all around the world. Lord, And so, oh God, may, may we never forget that calling. And may we not only not forget it, may it be on the front burner, Lord, of all that, all that we do as we look forward to that day of your victory in this world. And we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.